loving the house that ego built. I'd like to start, this is a little prologue that points to a little bit the direction that uh, we'll be going. It's a poem by David Budbill called Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl all day going around never leaving their bowl. I say that's right every day climbing back up the steep sides sliding back over and over again around and around up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl head in your hands cry moan feel sorry for yourself or look around see your fellow bugs Walk around, say, hey, how you doing? <laughs> say, nice bowl. <laughs> so, that uh, essentially sizes up the, um, the direction of this talk, hopefully, and the direction of our practice. <laughs> so I guess I can stop now. We have been and are um, in the course of our practice uh, in this week now. After this week, you have settled quite a bit. And you can see that quite naturally, just through this continuous flow of mindful attention, moment after moment, that we somewhat mysteriously and miraculously begin to move from the um, from the, this very narrow, tight, uh, we could call it vortex of our individual uh, internal preoccupations, our internal drama, to, a, a begin, to beginning to sense or intuit um, a wi the wider uh, gravitational field of the Dharma, where we're, we begin quite naturally to be aware of ourselves not so much as that uh, one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean, but ourselves more as that wave that is part of this uh, ocean, never for a moment being separated. Yet, of course, that's so different than the way it feels uh, in the drama that plays out in our mind. As I mentioned yesterday, uh, I gave the, the few lines from this poem where Rumi says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking, live in silence, flow down and down and down in ever widening rings of being. So you can see this is not a, it's not unique to, uh, to insight meditation practice. It's the, it's the urge of the heart to, uh, to widen out, to relax a little, to chill to stop the, stop the battle, stop the war. And it's that the stopping of the war, you may not appreciate this, but it, the stopping of the war is fulfilled in every single moment where you are with things as they are. When, another, another way of saying mindfulness. And another, another way of saying the, the word in Pali for things as they are is yata bhuta. When you just see this is how it is right now. Get used to it. Relax, chill. Yata Bhutta. Things are, things are as they are. But why do we stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Because moment by moment, based on, as one of my teachers said, 35 million years of conditioning, and Wes has his own more scientific version of that, through our own uh, avijja or ignorance or confusion, quite innocently, based on so many non-personal causes and conditions, through trauma, through the distance of our observation of things, through a lack of careful attention, we have from moment by moment, we have taken birth 
literally taken birth in our reactions, in our stories, and in reaction to those simple feeling tones that uh, someone asked the question about this morning. And I'll say a little bit more about that as we go along tonight. But out of those simple feeling tones, we have literally, without even knowing it, we've been born into this profound drama in our minds. And I say this in our mind because in one way, since you've arrived here, nothing's happened. You have never one moment left here and now. But what has your mind been doing? It has gone every which, every which way. And, but in our mind, without even knowing it, we enter into the world of our thoughts and our ideas and somehow, miraculously, in that world of thoughts and ideas, and then the feelings that go with them, somehow, an identity gets called together. And that identity, uh, because it's based on the body, I think it's one of our deepest identities is with this body, because it's tethered to the body, the body is always in a state of flux, unstable, aging. Because it's tethered to the mind, the thinking mind, thoughts, literally, so fast, so furious, can't even find one if you look for one. Can't even find a thought if you look for it. But because this sense of identity is tethered to the body, tethered to these thoughts, and then because of it, the way that it's tethered to thoughts, it's tethered to the concept of time. And time is always running out. But then we ask right here as we listen, where's time now? Where are our thoughts now? And when we feel ourselves directly here, we can name this thing called body, but all we really feel when we feel this, the immediacy of this moment is we feel sensation, feel vibration, hardness, pressure. We don't even feel body. We have to, it's one step removed from immediate experience. But one step removed leads to many, many, many steps removed. And we enter into that drama of the imagined me. And because it's tethered to all these things that are moving or are not inherently real, like time, or the body, or thoughts, it is by its very nature, the, the, the view that we have of ourselves, the feeling that we have about ourselves, it is inherently insecure, shaky, dreamlike, easily shaken. From one moment to the next, it's either I'm feeling great, I'm not feeling great. I'm feeling greater than this person, I'm feeling less great. So fleeting, so, so shaky is this whole world of our thinking that it breeds, it generates a feeling of insecurity anxiety, fear, a sense of uh, being self-conscious, deflated, inflated, the whole range of, of different uh, mental states that are born of this idea of ourselves that we sometimes call ego. So why do we stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Because we don't actually stop very often in our lives and feel that shakiness recognize the fleetingness of our thoughts of, about ourselves, recognizing the frig fragility of our body, recognize that we can't even find this time that's running out, that it's, it's a story. So rather than stop, we don't stop and feel that. And so the tension that follows from the 
ignorance of this underlying world of insecurity and flux and change that we've been talking a lot about. The effect of all that is the pressure that builds, spawns even more and more, you could say, disconnect. More the sense of feeling like we are that one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. And then in the midst of that drama that plays in our mind, the drama of the imagined me, there is the, this experience of this so-called ego or, or sense of I that is completely troublesome that we then want to get rid of. And then our mind creates a new one, the one who's having the problem with the other one and the one who's going to get rid of the, the, the ego. And then, so this sense of I and me and my, I, meing and myeing, it compounds until it really seems that there's someone here who is uh, dealing with someone also here who has to get rid of, fix, protect, defend, build up, enlighten, and because of the intensity of that drama, we completely miss that all of this, all of this, all of these ideas are just a view. They're just a perception of reality. What the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, personality view, view of self. So our identities are really a house of cards because you can't really find one when you look for it. But what's it like when we stop looking for a moment? When we just are here, just ourselves, all of us together. What's that like when we when there is a, uh, an absence of that story for a moment. We've all been pointing to this. You know, it's funny giving the talk on the eighth evening or the whatever evening it is. Everything has been set up to this point, so it's mostly a review. <laughs> but we have to ask ourselves, as Wei Wu Wei did in one of his poems, he says, why are you so unhappy? He says, because 99%, 99.9% of everything you do and think is for yourself. And there isn't one. <laughs> but that's not absolutely true. Because... It's so obvious that you are all here and that you are all here individually, relatively speaking. Expressing life in in that unique way that each of us does. You're so here. You're so, and all of us, and. I think we were talking a little bit at dinner, how sweet all of you, and I mentioned it yesterday in the, in the, um, the morning question and answer, that how, how to us you, you're all beautiful, and, and you can just see how attention to ourselves, to the moment's experience, brings a kind of affection, and it begins to brush the, that dust of memory, that dust of ideas, and we just all start to shine. And it's, it's quite a, a magnificent thing. And we, we begin to reclaim that, um, that the word in Pali is uh, tata, that the suchness, the, just the, somebody used the word in an interview today, the isness, the, just who you are, just your, your beingness that could never, ever be captured in the second-hand version that plays through your mind, that version of someone, the truth is, that doesn't even exist. It's an imaginary version. The one who, as has been alluded to, 
who doesn't feel that they are enough or feels that they're too much, that feels that they're above, below, you know, the whole apparatus of measuring that is, in the, that is the, um, the, one of the major preoccupations of that self-view, of that personality view. Where is that one? Right here. Some of you know this, but I, I really started to be, tune into this, uh, this incredible difference between, of course I saw it in my own mind. I, the immediate experience, I could only actually experience six things. There was seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and some thinking. And then I could just feel the life of, of the present moment. And even then, I, even the idea of present moment doesn't make any sense. Where's the moment? Where's now? Is there a place called now? Where is it? And where's then? And where is past? Now. <laughs> where's future? Anyway, I started to see, wow, this is so different than the, the version that plays in my mind. And what really brought this home to me was uh, because I had done a lot of thinking and done a lot of practice and all about seeing through the self-illusion and then uh, my beautiful Molly came along who many of you got a chance to meet and thank you again for those of you who, who uh, hung out with her allowed my wife to spend some time sitting and, and Molly just adores all of you. But Molly came along and Molly was so obviously, of course it was pre-personality view and it's still a bit pre-personality view but Molly is just so purely Molly. Has such Molliness, has such, just so, such an obvious, unique individual expression of life. Now she, she may not have any self, independent self-existence because like all of us, she's made up of earth, air, fire, wind, and uh, made up of all these uh, non-personal elements of culture and, and obviously, hopefully, okay, parental influence. But nevertheless, it's so obvious that she is Molly. But then slowly, slowly, I saw Molliness begin to give way to, I want, I want to have, for a while it was because she had curly hair, she wanted to have straight hair. And you could see the seeds of the personality view, thinking of herself as somebody who's somehow not quite good enough and would be better and would be happier. Thus begins the trance of uh, what the Buddha called bhava, becoming, going from from here, the only place that life is, to the imagined there, to the imagined future that, no, that never arrives, of course, because time is always now, that's come from the past that never was because that was just a present moment. And yet, you can see this fabrication taking place, how, she's, how in her mind, and it's, so it's part of human development, but the good news is we can begin to wake up out of this virtual version that plays in our mind and reclaim um, our heritage, to come home to that sense of immediacy. Because what we do find, and I, people have reported it over and over and over in interviews, is when we stop and we begin to feel ourselves. Jack was alluding to this in the question. Uh, period this morning, when we really settle in and we develop these tools of mindfulness, we begin to discover this, um, that tata, that suchness, that, that okayness, that enoughness, that sufficiency, that does not need any, does not have to be justified, doesn't have to be confirmed. It's just evident by the feeling of, of, of our being. As Thoreau put it, he says, I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. He says, my thanksgiving is perpetual. It's surprising how contented, with, how contented one can be with nothing definite, 
only a sense of existence. Oh, how I laugh at my vague, indefinite riches. For no run on my bank can drain it. For my wealth is not possession, but enjoyment, enjoyment of being. We begin to catch that a little bit. We begin to see the difference between that direct experience of ourselves, even when it's painful, the immediacy of it, and that secondhand version, that personality view, um, and the feelings that go with it, personality view that goes through our minds. One of my favorite passages uh, describing this, I, I, in fact, I was scanning some of my old notes and I, I mentioned this last year when I was here, but it's from Audubon, uh, I think it's James, I used to think it was Henry, but now I know it's, is it James Audubon, anyone know? James Audubon who said, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. So as we sit here with you, as I sit here with you, uh, I also think of a, a passage from, uh, from Emerson where he said, um, who or what you are, shout so loud, I can't hear what you say. It's so easy to miss. And the, the beauty is uh, that we rediscover that. We, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, we reclaim our heritage. He says, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living. Stop being that destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. Because it's very difficult. On, as a teacher named Douglas Harding put it, it's very difficult on present evidence to find that sense of insufficiency. To find that, find what you have been convinced uh, is wrong with you. What do we find when we're here, when we're simply here? What can we say about ourselves? Kind of renders us speechless, doesn't it? Can you find the not okayness if you don't consult your memory? As Rumi put it, out beyond our ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there's a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. What happens to that, that so-called uh, deep, well-established, convincing boundary between us? What happens to it? Just in a moment of silence, so easily overlooked, What is your experience when you don't have a view? A, when, there is, when there is a moment free of that view of self. One sutra put it, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. So we can sense at times in the practice, and I say at times because it's, these moments are, are not permanent, but we can sense in moments, as Dujim Rinpoche put it, after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises, that there is a, a sense of um, clarity, there's a vividness, there's an aliveness, a kind of what he's called a bare freshness there's reality. 
I think of a teacher named Nisargadatu who says, reality is what makes the present so vital. So different from past and future that are mental. So after that last thought has ceased and before the next one arises, in the simple moments of mindfulness, if we're actually paying attention, there's this, this okayness, this bare openness, this freshness that's never, ever been altered. We can start to sense that it hasn't been, um, it hasn't been hurt by any of our problems nor has it been improved by, by our, um, our awakening. It's just natural. It's just tata, the suchness. It's how it is. Just awake. And in the, that moment, maybe a thought arises. And if that thought is noticed as we sit, Maybe you had a few drift through your mind in these last few moments. If that's noticed, we see it's just an expression, a natural expression of our mind. Rumi put it this way, using that metaphor of the mirror. We are the mirror, as well as the face in it. We are the pain and what cures pain. We are the sweet cold water as well as the jar that pours. We are tasting the taste of eternity in each moment. So in that moment of seeing that thought for what it is, we see that there is no conflict at all. Thoughts just appearing, making no imprint, like a footprint of a bird in emptiness. But if, on the other hand, which is, I think, mostly true for us, what we have maybe the most practice at, is that thought arises and it goes unnoticed. And that thought then spreads out into what we call ordinary thinking. This is what Dujam Rinpoche calls uh, the chain of delusion. Because it's in those little moments that we are born into that imaginary, and it's fast, and it's furious, and it's thousands of times a day, we're born into that imaginary version of ourselves that's completely based uh, on past conditioning. So we then are, instead of consulting the life of the present moment, we're now consulting our memory. And as one of my teachers, uh, H.W.L. Punjaji put it, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Remove them by seeing the origins of these thoughts, not historically. That's where we usually look. We'll talk about that later. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future, because it will not work. Be attached only to this moment. When you hold to something other than your true nature, you will be disturbed. By holding attachment to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. Or as Hafiz put it, what do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. All of these stories of the past conditioned out of this field of six experiences. And unfortunately, ones that view 
emerges once we take birth into that drama and do not know it, do not know that we're involved in a view. Um, we start to feel the sense of shakiness. And our practice asks us and gives us the amazing opportunity of making that profound shift from that narrow little vortex of me and mine to that wider ring of, of being, which is really beginning to make the shift from being, having, putting our faith and our trust in this flimsy version of ourselves that plays through our mind, as interesting as it is and wonderful that we can think about it. It's a great thing to be able to think about ourselves, but it's not a very reliable refuge. So to be able to make the shift from putting our faith, what the Buddha called misplaced faith, in our views, our ideas about ourselves, our so-called identities, rather to put our trust and faith in Buddha, in the one who knows, in, that, in, in awareness, you could say. Once we begin to make that shift and once we begin to trust our capacity to know, feel the naturalness, the strength of our, our noticing, then those so-called ego trips, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the inflated, deflated, insecure, embarrassed, shameful, the greatest, good, better, best, all become quite workable. Something that just becomes something else to notice. That the very thing that can bind us so intensely, if we don't notice it, that becomes that chain of delusion, the, that very experience of somebodyness, when it meets our attention, even if it has that feeling of total insecurity, we embrace it. It becomes the cause of us coming right back to our seat. We're wonderful at noticing, in some ways, our different views about ourselves. We, in other words, we, we know what we think about ourselves. We know what our top tunes are. But we're not so great at feeling it, feeling the effect of it. We're not so great at feeling what's it like to feel terrific, the best. What's it like to feel as though no one sees you, no one respects you, no one loves you. Whatever your version is of whatever that view is that, that has been born of your circumstances. When we don't, when we simply notice the thoughts without question, one thought leads to another and out of love for ourselves, Love for that imagined one, you could say, the one who's not okay. Out of love for that imagined one, our mind continues to generate more and more plans and strategies and gets pulled into that, uh, that world of time. When am I going to be okay? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And what does that do to the feeling that we have in the present moment? It turns the, as Eckhart Tolle puts it, he, it turns the present, our living experience, the only place that we live, it turns it into a, a pass-through, a place we pass through on our way to something else from the past through the present to the future. So it, it becomes a, just a, a pass through or it becomes an obstacle or it becomes the enemy. And our whole sense of well-being is then held hostage to whether or not it's held hostage to the future, which doesn't exist, 
oppressing us with the worry and the fear that maybe whatever we do uh, won't make us happy. So someone went to Eckhart Tolle and asked him, asked him this question. He says, I cannot believe that I could ever reach a point where I'm completely free of my problems. And Eckhart Tolle responded, you're right. You can never reach that point because you are at that point now. There is no salvation in time. You cannot be free in the future. Presence is the key to freedom. So you can only be free now. Now, do, do you hear your mind kick and scream and say, but? <laughs> now, but is of the past. But is taking its orders from your personality view. What about now on present evidence? So we can begin to, um, one of the ways that we can begin to anchor our attention back here is to, one is to notice these different assumptions that we have in our mind, these different views about ourselves, and also feel them. Feel what it's like. To begin to feel, if we can, to move in the direction of, rather than trying to get rid of, dismiss, eradicate, uproot, to love these, the fragility that's felt because of these personality views, it affects our organism in such a way it's crying out for love, crying out for our kind attention and mercy. Because a lot of these views have been born of, of, of strain, of, you know, as we've been talking about, just the inherent stuff of being a human, not to mention the the effects of the of just the enormous weight of ignorance and confusion in this world and the, and every message that's that tells us from the time we wake up in the morning to keep the keep the desire body fed over and over and over again we're exhausted and we're we're shaky this needs love it needs to be cared for we need to, rather than get into the eradicate me project, we need to relax, chill out, love that house that ego built. Give it lots of room. Do a lot of heart rubs. You can see how it just comes. All of this came unbidden. We, you didn't ask to feel the way you do the sense of shakiness and insecurity. You can see how it unfolds in our lives so innocently. This is a, a poem from Sharon Olds, that, just an example of how this whole process unfolds. By the time I was six months old, she knew something was wrong with me. I got looks on my face that she had not seen on any child in the, in the family or the extended family or the neighborhood. My mother took me in to the pediatrician with the kind hands, a doctor with a name like a suit size for a wheel, hub long. <laughs> My mom did not tell him what she thought in truth that I was possessed. It was just these strange looks on my face. He held me and conversed with me, chatting as one does with a baby. And my mother said, she's doing it now, look. She's doing it now, the doctor said. What your daughter has is called a sense of humor. <laughs> oh, she said, and took me back to the house where that sense would be tested and found to be incurable. So these views are formed from parental projections and cultural projections and teachings and illness and racism and, and just everything that informs how this, 
how we come to view ourselves innocently. But because they are tethered to ideas, they, they have at their core a, a sense of a vulnerability. And that vulnerability does not need uprooting or rejection. It needs to be loved. It needs to be loved up. It needs what could be called the grounding of your kind attention. Jack met a person uh, many years ago, a, a woman in, in Burma named Jocelyn King, who one day looked up from whatever she was doing in her, her home and she said, I don't understand why people prefer the quicksand of somethingness rather than the firm ground of emptiness. The sense of something or someoneness is, is, is like quicksand. But you may find the more that you let yourself feel the grief, the sadness, the shakiness, the, the uh, trembling, the, what did you call it, the queasiness, the more we're, we let that queasiness into that field, that ground of attention, it becomes um, somehow transformed, eased. Of course, we can't pay attention to these things in order for that to happen because that's greed in the mind. It really has to be that, that, you could say, that loving embrace, loving the house that ego built. It's a little odd for me to be so organized in a talk. I actually have a form that I normally am just taking off, so I'm shocking myself a little bit tonight. We actually don't prefer the quicksand of somethingness. That's really just all we've known. That's all we've known is that continual preoccupation with trying to secure, trying to protect, trying to build up, trying to fix, trying to enlighten. That's all we've known. We have not known up until this time the, st the incredible stabilizing power of our own attention, of our own kindness. But as we develop this kindness, develop this capacity to relax with our different personality views, not only does affection follow attention, but a sense of humor follows it. We begin to laugh at the, at the machinations of the, the feeble attempt, the futile attempt to make ourselves into something that is... Uh, that is um, somehow better than we are. And that circular loop of the imaginary me. That one who really doesn't exist. Kabir, I think, had this sense of humor and this understanding. He wrote in his poem, Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. What is that one thing? It's not really the I. It's confusion. It's delusion. It's the mis misidentification. That case, as Wes was saying the other night, that case of mistaken identity. So when we put our trust in awareness that ground of attention, of kind attention. We can start noticing those different versions of ourselves that play in our mind. We can begin to see maybe a little bit differently 
when you see that those that self-identity is an idea already the proximity of your noticing is getting a little closer because from a distance you know if you look at every moment's experience it's said that every moment there are these five little empty heaps that happen in each instant of experience there's contact with one of the sense doors there's feeling that we've talked about pleasant unpleasant neutral there's perception there's mental formations and there's consciousness and this third one perception perception how we perceive ourselves how we perceive anything depends on how close we are on the proximity of our observation from a distance we look like solid bodies we look like we look very distinctly different from each other and that has some relative truth but if we come closer to these bodies as Wes uh, shared with us the other night they're made up of uh, they're they're not as solid as they appear in fact I brought a little uh, a further bit of uh, statistics about this about what we call the body that from a certain distance seems like a thing Every breath, we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fill in, it would fill in an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That is from the earth to the sun and back 400 times. The, the body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour. This is where it gets gross. (laughs) About 1.5 pounds per, per year. By 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your house are made from dead skin. Body makes a new stomach lining every five days. Body makes a new liver every six weeks. Replaces a new head every two to five years. Replaces eyebrows every three to five months. Grows new skin once a month. Body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to this sentence. Radioactive isotope studies show the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So in other words, in any given moment, parts of the body are appearing and disappearing. So if you think you're your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is obviously not the same as the one you had even yesterday. So it's the same effect, perception is affected also by paying attention to our moods where there is such a strong sense of identity associated with moods. But you've all seen in the course of, of the retreat that moods seem to emerge, come into consciousness completely unbidden. They don't come according to anybody's, anybody's will or wish. They emerge, they come, they have a certain quality of energy to them have a little story connected to them. They come like waves, like weather fronts. They come and they reveal themselves as changing conditions. And in recognizing that they're changing conditions, it's so obviously that they are impersonal in that way. They can't really define us. Where are they now? All of those incredible moods that are so meaningful in our lives. And of course, they're beautiful and they make us human, and they make us connectable, and they, they're wonderful, but they don't really define us. They're not self. Not me, not mine. But from the distance, they are immediately wrapped around this personality view. But we can begin to wake up and go, oh, this is the, this is the I'm... 
I'm a sad person view. This is I'm, I'm, um, I'm not enough view. And all the feelings that go with that. Oh, isn't that interesting? Nothing to do about that other than to recognize this is a view. This is a feeling. Same with thoughts. I know Jack mentioned this the other night. That I'm not sure if he gave the same statistics, but it's. But thoughts are tend to be one of our deepest um, sources of identification. Yet every day it's said that we have 65,000 of them, and that 90% are repeats from the day before. But from a distance, they seem so clear. It seems so much that they're my thoughts. And then from a conventional point of view, from a distance, they are my thoughts. They're not your thoughts. They're my thoughts. And we won't abandon that, that sense of, um, of our personal thoughts. But f- when we come a little closer, we see that this, this thought machine completely generates them unbidden. But it's not that, it's not that random we can begin to see the connection between those little feeling tones. We can see that in a moment, in a moment where there is a a pleasant feeling tone that's associated with some sound or some sight, I wonder if any of you are having a pleasant feeling tone right now. Now when there's a pleasant feeling tone, and we're not so mindful of it, it's us- and whether we're mindful or not, usually it's instantaneously followed by liking. And that liking produces a little charge. Liking. That liking, especially when it goes unnoticed, is quickly followed by what? Wanting. That wanting is often followed by craving. Craving is followed by bhava or becoming and the tension that produces all the way along that line then spits out this little sea of thoughts called the imagined me who's going to who's got to figure out how I'm going to get from here the imagined here to the imagined there and I enter into and of course nothing has happened nothing has happened but my mind has taken off into this, um, into this virtual drama. But of course the body follows. And before I know it, as has happened to me many times, I spent um, one retreat thinking, uh, it started with a thought of, um, how should, should I tell this story? It started with a thought of, um, how much it was November 20th time of the year when I used to as a as a child as a teenager used to um, enjoy the the gridiron enjoy the football season I grew up in a state where the state identity was tethered to the football team so this is the personality view that's based on group you and we have lots of those too but this moment of pleasure, when thinking about my childhood, is associated with the fact that a few days from then, the annual game played between my team, me and mine, and their, their chief rival. Well, that pleasantness wasn't actually noticed as just a pleasant feeling, even though I was two months into a, a retreat. It tells you the force of the... Um, of sometimes the blinding force of the wanting mind. But that pleasant feeling was followed by liking, by wanting, by craving. And before I knew it, I was strategizing how to figure out a way to find a television. (laughs) It's it's not so funny. two months into a three-month retreat. Again, nothing's happened, but I was gone. Someone overheard me telling the the teacher that I was working with 
somebody who was at the retreat but actually not practicing, overheard me talking about it and wrote me a little note and offered to drive me si silently to a little motel. <laughs> and from that point I was fully engaged in that particular incarnation as the one who needed to have this experience. This is called uh, tanha or craving which uh, we've talked about many different nights and all the thoughts were called, uh, we, the Buddha called them uh, papancha, complication, proliferation. My mind was spinning in it. At that point when there's so much complication where, there's, where you are so far removed from just the, rea the simple reality of the six sense doors, it, is, it was as though I had to live out that lifetime. So this is why it's so important to develop that power of attention. To not, uh, it's, a, it's a very important, uh, it's a very important tool that can uh, protect you from having to live lives that you don't necessarily want to. Because every time we're, we follow one of those we, and take birth into one of those little lives, we're bound until it's, it's done. And of course, I was driven literally 30-something miles <laughs> to a motel where paid the bill, walked in the room, watched the game. The team lost. <laughs> but, then, but then that life was over. I woke up. And what was the residue of that? Self-consciousness, embarrassment, shame, confusion. We've all done some version of this. And what do we normally do at that moment? Do we feel that? Do we really take it in, let it be our compassion door, our door of wisdom? What do we usually do? We generate a new desire. And we're off, we're off and running. This is one of the ways that personality view takes shape around desire. Another way it, t it takes birth is around just all kinds of ways about what we think we need to be happy. And it's usually we need something. Any of you think you need something to be happy? Really, right now. Do you need something pleasurable to be happy? This is what Sri Nisargadatta said. As long as we believe we need things or to become someone to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is expressed negatively, best expressed negatively as there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of practice is to reach a point where this conviction instead of be, being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. Which experience? The experience of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in openness, in nothingness, in emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. So if we don't recognize this, we end up like our friend Spence, who was featured in an advertisement for uh, some pickup truck company, and 
when they described Spence, they said that Spence put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. And you can see where that's led. It hasn't made anyone happy. So we form our personality view around um, often and get mostly tormented one way or another and, the, and the, some of the questions this morning spoke of this. A lot of our personality view is, is around what the Buddha called mana, uh, which is the word for pride or conceit or as we often call it, the comparing mind. That, again, the comparing mind, that sense of someone's doing equal to me, that's mana, amana, they're doing worse than me, or I'm, 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 or I'm worse than them, that's amana, or atimana, I'm better than them. There's the equality view, the inferiority view, the superiority view. It's the preoccupation of the personality view to be measuring always measuring how high, how low, where do I fit in the scheme of things. If, you know, if your mind is doing that, that's the personality view. We can begin to notice that. Not get rid of it, notice it. See it as the personality view. See it as the comparing mind. Comparing, comparing. But also to feel the impact of that. Feel what it's like when you feel less than. Feel what it's like when you feel better than. Many people came into interviews It was so um, inspiring to hear people recognizing these different views because I knew the moment someone recognizes, any of you recognizes the inferiority view, the superiority view, and you're mindful of it, that which is mindful of it is not caught up in it. It's noticing it. This is something that, uh, that we have to also have a sense of humor about. This is, there are lots of cartoons been written about this. This is uh, the rhymes with orange checklist of feeling pathetic. Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Examine your face closely in the mirror, note all flaws. Relieve embarrassing awful moments that occurred years ago. Resign yourself to believing that from now on this is how you'll always feel. But this is, our minds do this, and we can notice it. And we can love ourselves up when we see how, how lethal that is. Especially, it's even more lethal when it goes unnoticed. Comparing ourselves to ideals. I'm going to go a few extra minutes. Sorry. Comparing ourselves to ideals is a huge one. I think it's been spoken about on other impossible ideals. And one of the beautiful things about us uh, is that we're idealistic, but it becomes a, a torment to the mind. And you can really see the way that we're measuring. I should do this. I, always I should be more of this. I should, 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 should. And uh, again, a sense of humor about this. A, a brief poem called Inner Strength that really speaks about this, uh, this com comparing to ideals. It says, if you can start the day without caffeine or pet pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches, pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies or conceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without alcohol, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all these things, then you're probably the family dog. <laughs> so, sorry, <laughs> had to read that. So I have a lot of different jokes that I could read, but I think you're in on the joke. That, um, that we can start to see the humor in our, our futile attempts to, be in, to feed that state of becoming. 
because it's just a circular loop of an imagined person trying to, be, to get to some imaginary place. And we can begin to use that very comparing mind, that very superiority view, very inferiority view, the very insecurity that is the effect of all of these views. We can use it all to bring us right back to this vital point, to feed that, that uh, quicksand to the, the ground of attention and begin more and more to, um, to live and to trust in that, um, in that sense of presence, that simple reality, that simple beauty that each of you is, that each of us are. So I'd like to close with words of uh, Rumi again. This is a Rumi talk. His poem called Tending Two Shops. Don't run around this world looking for a hole to hide in. There are wild beasts in every cave. If you live with mites, with mice, the cat claws will find you. The only rest comes when you're alone with the divine. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops, and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller, checkmate, this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. Let's just sit for 10 seconds more. You don't have to change position. May all beings, may all of us love the house that ego built.